over there? I need to talk to you. What about Arnie? About Christine. Welcome to Now Playing's review of Christine. Oh man, there is nothing fine except maybe for pussy. Part of the Stephen King movie retrospective series. We'll show those shitters what we can do. Hosted by Arnie. Yeah, that's you, Arnie. Always in demand. Stuart. Arnie's problems have been the story of my life. And Jacob. I know a creep when I see one. I think I'm looking at one right now. This podcast contains detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Don't be scared. I'm scared for you, man. Listener discretion is advised. Okay. Show me. Today we're talking about Christine, starring Keith Gordon, John Stockwell, Alexandra Paul, Robert Prosky, and Harry Dean Stanton, directed by John Carpenter. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing, and you know, there's just nothing better in the world than podcasting, except maybe for pussy. Shitter in LA. (laughs) And this is the host that's so mean, you can pour boiling water down my throat and I'll piss out ice cubes, Jacob. So, Stephen King, 1983. Not a ton of films by this point. His name was still solid gold by this point. And in this case, the rights to Christine were bought before the book was ever published. And this movie came out the same year as the book. Ah, and I had never read the book and never saw this movie until I knew we were getting to this podcast. This one has completely escaped me this whole time. Really? Neither? Wow. Neither. And I tried to read everything, but it was a big book. And I honestly think the bias is I've just never been in love with cars. <laughs> My first car was like a shitty Escort that had a crack in the window. I, you know, I just, I didn't have a love affair with the automobile. And so it just never seemed like a great vehicle for evil and scariness. I'm right there with you, Stuart. You know, I was the oldest of six children. My parents wanted me to get my driver's license so I could play chauffeur and taxi the younger kids around. Yeah, my first car, I think I got it from my grandma, a Dodge Aries Series K. The brown, oh, it had a bench front seat. Yeah, it was styling. Yeah, but you know what? I'd never read the book or saw this movie before, but that story about a killer car, this has been done before, right? I don't know. I just feel like I know this story without even seeing the movie. Well, there was the car that where Satan drove around running people over and Mr. Barbara Streisand tried to stop him and there was the hearse. Haven't seen that. Maybe maybe it's Maximum Overdrive I'm just thinking of. Maximum Overdrive, definitely. There's an influence here. Remember, he wrote Trucks before he wrote this. Also, the thing critics at the time kept referencing was, of course, Steven Spielberg's Duel. Yeah, but I, I think that's why I missed it, Arnie. I mean, I knew it was a big movie. I, I like John Carpenter. I think I saw every other movie he made in the 80s. But this one, I don't think I even realized it was a John Carpenter movie. I don't know why. I can't give you a good reason. How could you not? It's John Carpenter's Christine. I thought that was a little weird. <laughs> Well, it's been a gap. And so it's rare. I mean, I do feel like usually when we get to any depot in the Stephen King world, I've either read the book or seen a movie or a sequel of of something in there. But this one I came completely cold to. I saw this movie for the first time in the 80s. 
Now, I can't say I was big into car culture either, despite the Fast and Furious references before. Until very recently, I've never been proud of a car I owned. I mean, my first car was a freaking Nissan Sentra hatchback two-door. At least it was a stick shift, though, so I was able to at least burn transmission fluid. But I saw this because it was Stephen King, because it was John Carpenter. Oh, come on. It's because it's Arnie. I didn't know that. Stuart, you thought you had it bad with characters named Stuart in movies. Man, Arnie... (laughs) All the bad things I'm going to say, it's not against you. I'm talking about this character. Hey, this is probably the only time in the history of now playing that we will have a main character named Arnie. If we ever get to What's Eating Gilbert Grape, it won't be any more flattering. (laughs) So (laughs) if there's a bit of narcissism in the opening and closing credits here, indulge me. It's the one time in however long we do this show, almost 10 years now, that I get my name. I always knew that that name thing was yours because I think your one of your first computers or the one that you built from scratch was called Christine. And I always knew that you were referencing uh, this book. That's right. I had a computer and it was a temperamental little bitch. A couple of times I cut my hand in it on the steel case and then it worked with my blood in it. Sounds more like the mangler. <laughs> It was a really souped-up computer. I always prided myself on being one generation ahead of everybody else I knew, having exponentially more RAM. I mean, it was a powerful computer. And when it started being temperamental, I called it Christine. And then when Marjorie came into my life, Christine stopped working. Mm. Did Marjorie ever choke on a hamburger around it? (laughs) No, however, it would never boot for her. Ever. She would, like hit the button it would like start to load and crash i don't know how to explain any of this other than wild coincidence but yes i loved that computer her name was christine uh around 2002 or so no i probably kept her limping along until 2005 when i finally replaced her with my macintosh laptop who I named Maxine. Hmm. It's not like I named my computer because I wanted to, though. I mean, this was back when networking was starting and you had to give your computer a name. I'd never thought of naming a computer before. But if Arnie had a super powerful machine and I had to name it for the network, okay. (laughs) Okay, I didn't know that it gave you such problems. I didn't know that it was jealous, but that makes it even more interesting. (laughs) But yes, I watched this not knowing Arnie was the main character. I hadn't read the book when I first saw this movie. I did read the book in college, and I remember reading the whole thing in a weekend. You said it was big. It came in my Stephen King library. I tore through that book, and I did reread it before this podcast, as well as, of course, rewatch the movie and all the bonus features and everything. Yeah, my impressions about the book was that it seemed to carry over a lot from different seasons it is about a killer car and there are horrific moments but i actually think the strongest writing in there is king reflecting on childhood friendships and guys growing apart and that was the stuff that really struck me it seemed to me like a very weird sequel to stand by me stand by me ended or the body ended on the last day before school started This one starts on the first day before school picks back up. It goes over a great deal of time, and it is. I'll get into it on Books and Nachos, but it's all about aging, be the aging from teen to adult or from adult to old person or old person to death. 
That said, this book to me, if I were to summarize it, is The Shining on Wheels starring Carrie. <laughs> yeah, I see a lot of Stephen King throughout. Everything he has written before, he sort of led him to this moment. And I could definitely see some Carrie in this, some Stand By Me into this. Why don't we tell him what the plot is? We can get into whatever Christine is. Well, Christine is a 1958 Plymouth Fury that apparently was built bad because on the assembly line, it proceeds to bite one guy's hand by slamming its lid down and then kill another guy in mysterious circumstances when he sits in the car and flicks ash on the passenger seat. He then just falls out dead. It's that red color. I, I blame the color red. Should have been yellow like the rest. <laughs> Apparently, that was never a stock color for that car either, so had to be a custom paint job. Satan red. Get into trouble with that red. But in the autumn of 1978, Arnie Cunningham, played by Keith Gordon, is a high school loser who has only one friend, Jock Dennis, played by John Stockwell. Arnie is regularly picked on by a gang of thugs in his high school, led by Buddy Repperton, William Ostrander. But Buddy goes a bit too far when he pulls a switchblade on Arnie and gets expelled. But things start to turn around when, while driving home with Dennis, Arnie spies Christine. She's beat to shit, rusted, barely runs, but Arnie sees promise in it. Or should I say, in her. Old foul-mouthed George LeBay is selling the car, saying it belonged to his brother Roland, but now Roland is dead and George is trying to sell everything of his brothers. Despite Dennis's protests, Arnie buys the car, which leads to fights with his parents, but Arnie is adamant he's keeping and he's going to fix up Christine. He ends up parking her at a local do-it-yourself garage owned by Will Darnell, played by character actor Robert Prosky. And Arnie does succeed in fixing the car up, and his mechanical skills get him hired by Darnell doing some car work and running parts for him. With the car, Arnie finds newfound confidence, though it comes with a new, pissy attitude. But despite that, Arnie also succeeds in winning the heart of attractive new transfer student Lee, played by Alexandra Paul. But the newly fixed up car brings some problems too. While playing football, Dennis is shocked to see Arnie and Lee making out on Christine's hood, and the distraction causes him a broken leg and a long hospital stay. Also, crazy as it may seem, Lee seems jealous of the car, not letting Arnie go all the way in it because she thinks the car is the other woman. After rebuking Arnie, she nearly chokes to death on a hamburger, while the car seems to lock Arnie out and play loud 50s rock music. Things come to a head, though, when Buddy and his gang see Arnie's car. They break into Darnell's and demolish the vehicle. This sets Arnie off, blaming his parents and Lee as much as Buddy's group. And this is where Christine reveals her power. She rebuilds herself for Arnie, good as new. Then, when Arnie is out of town and has a good alibi, Christine goes on a kill spree, taking out all the members of Buddy's gang. This is investigated by Detective Junkins, played by Harry Dean Stanton. And the cop has a good idea Arnie and Christine are involved, but he obviously can't prove it. The car has no damage and Arnie's alibis are ironclad. But around this time, Dennis is released from the hospital and notices how much Arnie has changed. Together, Dennis and Lee conspire to get the negative influence, Christine, out of Arnie's life. Dennis keys Christine, challenging the car to a duel at Darnell's, and there Dennis waits in a bulldozer along with Lee. Christine shows up, and while Dennis tries to ram her, Christine keeps healing and goes after Lee, and this time we see Arnie is actually inside the car. 
When Christine rams a wall, Arnie is thrown through the window, impaled on glass, but as he dies, he lovingly touches his car. Christine keeps coming, and finally Dennis flattens her with the bulldozer. And later, Lee, Dennis, and Junkins watch as Christine is crushed into a tiny cube, and the cop calls the two heroes as credits roll. So, before we get into the film, I gotta ask, we've been discussing how we like King and Carpenter in many reviews, but George Thorogood, how do you guys feel about him? (laughs) I was pissed. I couldn't, I'm like, they've dragged that cliche out. I had to think about it a second. This was a new song. This may have been the first thing to place Bad to the Bone in anything, which is unimaginable now. It's been in, <laughs> what, every chipmunk movie, every, I feel like anytime a kitty movie wants to feature a rebellious character, yes, they go to George Thorogood. Yeah, according to Carpenter, this was the first time it was ever used in a film. Wow. Wow. What, what was shocking to me, again, it opens up with John Carpenter. Christine, I'm like, where's the like synth? It's a totally quiet open until that bad to the bone comes out, which, look, I agree, that that is, for a movie about a killer car, it's an appropriate song to open with. Yeah, but boy, what an overplayed song. I mean, how much money, how many licenses has that man (laughs) lived off of from bad to the bone? It has just become a cliche in and of itself. But, uh, you know, I'll forgive the movie. In 1983, the song was only a year old. First time it was used. Yeah, not around in 1957. But I guess it's true. This car was born evil. There's no real excuse for why it starts killing mechanics when it's rolling off the assembly line in 1957 Detroit. Yeah, it's just built bad, built kind of sentient major change from the book in the book it's pretty clear that it was an ordinary car until it was owned by roland lemay and he kind of created the evilness in it kind of again like the overlook hotel and his rotting corpse was a major player in that book he was the one driving the car Hmm. they cut that because around the time they were writing this american werewolf came out and they're like well that was already done as kind of a comedy way of having this ghost zombie around so let's rewrite it let's make the car bad and let's add this new opening to show it's always been bad oh interesting yeah i mean i feel like we're owed some explanation i mean appliances aren't just born evil but uh you know i don't want to get into a mangler situation where we have (laughs) to have the ice box electrically zap the washing machine (laughs) while the antacids are dumped in there i mean we've seen over explaining all right it's a possessed machine let's move on like you said Stuart, it's that red color i almost saw like like Lord of the Rings, but without all the elves and dwarves and magic. It's just, it's this thing that, a possession that will overtake you, that will corrupt you. And I, I'm kind of good with that. Like the symbol of a car when you're a teenager, it's this thing of freedom. It's a social status. I, I'm okay with it kind of being unexplained. I, I never really felt myself pondering on why is this car so evil? I, I ponder on a lot of other things during this film, but that was not one of them. I guess because I, when I look at the book, my favorite parts were the, the human drama stuff. The car was just a means by which Arnie would rebel. And so all it did was represent his alienation from everyone around him. And so it was adolescent rebellion incarnate. I think the only choice I would make is I wouldn't begin here on the assembly line. I don't care whether it's killed two factory workers before. We don't have enough time here to to really get any scares out of that. Yeah, I agree. Get rid of all the former deaths and just have Arnie find it in a junkyard and fall in love with it. I don't know. I think it 
is good to reference this car's history. We're going to find out that it has killed little girls and women and the former owner killed himself in it. I think starting with a death is really not a bad idea for this quote-unquote horror film. And even Carpenter says it's a kind of a horror comedy as much as horror. This movie? Yeah, that's what he says. <laughs> it's not a comedy. But it's going to be quite some time, like an hour. Way too long. Before Christine starts going homicidal. So starting by showing Christine as a killer car... It lets us know to be afraid of it. It gives us that sense of literary irony where we know more than Arnie does. We know Arnie shouldn't buy this car. This car is going to be bad for Arnie. So when he does find it later on, we will be a little bit trepidatious for him. And poor Arnie. I mean, it is a montage of every bad geek cliche here in the beginning, isn't it? He can't even open his locker. Yeah, the garbage bag falls out from under him and he gets trash all over the driveway. Bullies are stabbing his yogurt. And yet what feels different, and maybe this goes back to that Stand By Me vibe, is that he's friends with the jock. I do like this relationship he has with Dennis because it doesn't feel cliche, the jock and the nerd getting along. Yeah, you get the sense that these guys were friends for a long time. And they had just grown apart. And honestly, Arnie, that mirrored what you and I had gone through. We ended up in high school going to different schools. I didn't really know what was going on in your life at that time. So I do know what it feels like to have a really close friend suddenly feel more foreign. And that's kind of what I'm getting out of two guys that really don't travel in the same clique. And yet they're going in the same car to the first day of school. And I got from this movie that they were still really close together at the beginning. The thing that comes between them, the thing that changes them is Christine. I mean, in the first 15 minutes of this film, Arnie and Dennis are almost never apart. They're together going to school. They're together when he's getting picked on. Dennis helps him open the locker. I do kind of get the feeling that this is before they've grown apart and they still hang out all the time. And we're going to get that kind of implied later on. But we're going to see what comes between them when they do drive by Christine. Yeah, and again, I'm kind of enjoying this drama. I, I'm no John Carpenter. I'm expecting killer cars. Let's get to it. But... I like how untraditional this feels. You know, Dennis, he's sitting there trying to get Arnie laid. I like that it's going to be, you know, it's not about the jock going after the nerd. It's like the reverse of Revenge of the Nerds. It's going to be the nerd going bad in this one. Yeah, you know, though, I got to say, Dennis isn't really helping when he's trying to hook him up with a woman with a mustache. He's being realistic. And saying the grossest line. This is a movie that uses the word cunt all the time. And yet the grossest line to me is, what do you care if you get a little hair in your mouth? Yeah, you know, that's playful guy talk. I mean, I recognize this as banter, razzing each other. I mean, in a vulnerable moment, rather than bonding over the empathy of it, he'll take that opportunity to make a joke. This is oftentimes how guys talk to one another. All of that felt authentic. I wish we had better actors. I'm going to just put it out across the board. I would recast everyone if I could. <laughs> yeah, you know what? I thought John Travolta was in this coming from Carrie, but it's I called him Caveman John Travolta, whoever played Buddy. <laughs> He really looks like John Travolta. For a second, he had the sideburns, he had the long hair, he had the chin, but he has like a caveman brow. I mean, this thing looked like Carrie. Oh, this whole movie's Carrie, I agree. Yeah, Sue is legitimately friends with Carrie 
but that's really the only change here is, you know, in Carrie, Sissy Spacek was alone and no one talked to her. And then Amy Irving eventually felt bad and was like, oh, I'll help you out. And here they're asking us to believe that the nerd has one friend. And the casting, you can blame Carpenter for this. He wanted unknowns. They did have, in the role of Arnie, Kevin Bacon. He was signed (laughs) and on board and then backed out when he got Footloose. Probably wise for him. I mean, that was obviously a big hit for his career. And the studio was pushing for names. Apparently, Joni Loves Chachi had just gone off the air, so they wanted Scott Bayo. He was available. <laughs> oh. Was he going to play the nerd? Okay. So it could have been much worse, is what you're saying. <laughs> Be grateful for what we have. I mean, Scott Bayo. The reason why Joni Loves Chachi went off the air is because nobody loves Chachi. It was going to be Scott Bayo as Arnie with Brooke Shields as Lee. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my. Yeah, they, that's so they never had a great cast is what you're saying here. And <laughs> they had names, but not a great cast. Yeah. Let me stand up for Keith Gordon, though. This is an actor. He's now a director, but an actor I saw quite a bit in the 80s. And I think I recognized him always as, hey, it's Arnie from Christine. But this is his best performance. I like him in this. He's not that good as Rodney Dangerfield's son in Back to School. He's really miscast in The Legend of Billie Jean. But here, I think he really plays Arnie well. I think that he, especially in the geeky times, I have trouble not seeing this guy as a geek in any other role he does. Perhaps it's best he went behind the camera because he sells nerdy Arnie so well that it's hard for me to see anything else. I also like the fact that later on, he's not that great at being cool Arnie because it just shows no matter what happens with Christine, he's always been and always will be a nerd. And he wasn't good before. It should be said he was, I think, of all this cast, someone that people might have seen before. He was in Dress to Kill the Brian De Palma movie in a sporting role. He's also in Jaws 2, if you want to remember that movie. He was the Brody Kid's friend, I think. He was in the big climax. I don't remember him in it, even though I know he talked about it. I just watched that, but I don't remember him, yeah. Yeah, don't try. I mean, I think that that's the problem, is that they got a guy that just feels built for TV. He has this nice, affable quality, and he has no movie star charisma whatsoever. And what we need from this is torment. We need Sissy Spacek pathos. We need someone that looks wounded. I do get wounded from him. The way he looks... When they're stabbing his lunch and pulling the switchblade on him, I get wounded. What I don't get is mousy or anything, but come on. I saw a lot of people in high school with this kind of, I'm trying to keep my chin up, and sometimes people just beat me down. Yeah, I feel that this, though, goes more into Richard Bachman territory than Carrie. Like, Carrie, I feel bad for that character based on them. I mean, she's a pariah, but like you could blame her mom. Arnie, I actively dislike. I never have that same feeling that I had for Carrie. I I feel like he embraces the evil side. Carrie, she does it at the very end, but it's a way she's been picked on so much and covered in pig's blood. I just don't see a shit on your dashboard the same. But wait, 
for the first half hour, you don't like Arnie? No, he's fine. I mean, again, the acting doesn't get it, do anything to get me to really embrace him. But okay, he's the picked on nerd. I get the type. And they have softened him. But much like they did Carrie, I mean, on the page, he was covered in acne. He was overweight. It gave them somewhere to go. He actually wasn't overweight. He wasn't? No. He was working construction. He was thin and scrawny. Well, I got the impression when I read the book that he was more not put together than Keith Gordon is at the beginning of this movie. Yeah, definitely the acne is a big part of that. Here, how many movies have I seen, and this may just be me on this panel, where you start with this ugly girl because she has mousy hair and glasses on and bad clothes, and at the end of the movie, she takes down her hair, takes off her glasses, dresses sexy, and all of a sudden, she's super hot. Yeah, again, I know the type. I I'm sure you could name movies. I know the type of film, though. Yeah, I'm thinking Love Potion Number 9 with Sandra Bullock. And... Grease. I mean, yeah, every movie about a, a Cinderella story. But I think that's what they've got here, is you can't really cast somebody who has bad complexion and things because you want it to be able to clear up magically and this was a low budget film so there was a limit to how much they could do on these things i think gordon sells it well through body language his hairstyle his tone of voice i get that he is really beaten down and this is the first thing he's gonna fight for in his life well, here's what I would say. When what I respond to most on the page is the drama, that's what I most want to see on the screen. They kind of skip over that stuff, and it's probably wise, because I just, I'm not getting this feeling of passion and friendship, and it's just not coming through on the page. I mean, you know, when you're hiring John Carpenter, you're trying to make a horror movie, so I guess they're right to streamline and make that. I'll tell you this much. I picked up the Twilight Time Blu-ray that had deleted scenes and all of it on it. And most of the deleted scenes are just extended scenes, and you're like, well, thank you for showing me things that editors cut for a reason. But one, there are one or two scenes. One of them is Arnie post this fight. And the scene is in the book where Arnie just breaks down and cries and in Dennis's arms. He just is so emotionally overwrought, he can't take it anymore, and Dennis just has to hold him while he cries. Yeah, Gordon wasn't up to that challenge. They cut that scene because he was bad. I'm positive of it. Yeah, you know, I would have liked to see something like that, something the actors could pull off at least, because when he sees that car, why does Arnie want to buy a junker? Like, I get he's he just started shop. Like, it's the first day of school. He can't know that much about restoring cars. And all of a sudden, he wants to buy this. If there was something, like, he was so tortured, and he said, oh, this is the status symbol that... You know, I, I just don't get that. I can infer things, but I don't see it in the movie as it's portrayed. The way I always got it is the car was calling to him. And that's how King wrote it in the book. But even before I read the book, that's what I got is this is an evil car that has a symbiotic relationship with its driver. I definitely got Little Shop of Horror vibes from this. Yeah, yeah. And it called him. He saw that and it was an instant love at first sight kind of thing. Although I do like the line from this movie where it's like he finally found something uglier than he is, but he could fix it. You know, and they film it in the way that you're talking, Arnie. They actually have the character see it before the audience does. Dennis is driving the car, his cool car, past this yard with all the scrap. We don't see anything in that. It takes Arnie saying, go back for the camera to 
pullback and see what was rolling off the assembly line 21 years ago in far worse shape. Is there any significance to the 21 years? It's adult. It can drink now. It can vote. It's actually 20 years. Exactly. It's a 58 model and this is 78. It's exactly 20 years. No, because 58 means it came out in 57. The new models come out the year early and the inner title said 57. Right. It was made in 57, but it's a 58 car. So I think they were going for 20 years. King in the book wrote that, and I haven't fact checked this, but when a car is 20 years from the model year, it is considered antique. So at this moment, it is when it's become an antique car instead of just an old car. And it's dispensed of its owner. They walk up and find out that six weeks before, the guy that owned this, for the whole time since it rolled off the assembly line, is dead. What is George wearing? This is the brother of the guy who owned the car. I'm like, is that a straight jacket? Did he just walk out of an asylum? Like, I don't even understand what he has on. It's a back brace, a grimy, ugly back brace. I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't read the book, though. I think I've always wondered what he was wearing. Okay, so I really did wonder if it was a straitjacket that he like gotten out of. Makes him look crazy, that's for sure. And you want to do that. I mean, obviously, he's the harbinger. He's the guy, oh, you're in trouble now. I mean, obviously, he wants to unload the, the car, but for reasons that we'll, we'll find out later is because it has a bad history. It killed both his brother and his brother's wife, and... His brother's daughter. And yet he's perfectly fine selling the car to go kill again for 250 bucks. Now, I know $250 was a lot more in 1978 than it is today, almost 40 years after that. But if he really thinks about this car, what he seems to, he could just have it crushed. I mean, I don't, selling it for parts, something like that. I kind of get the impression, the way they portray him here, which is, I mean, this guy's an amalgam character, not really in the book at all. I get the feeling he wants Christine's reign of terror to continue in some way. I mean, the way he talks to Dennis and everything, he seems perfectly fine letting the car out to do some more damage. Uh, well, he wants to get rid of it. I mean, I think he wants it out of his life because it's caused such misery. That's my take on it. And I don't know if you guys recognize this actor. I actually did. Home Alone. Yeah. He's the creepy old guy. The neighbor next door that, that's always shoveling, right? Yeah, who they think's a killer. So he's good at playing imposing characters in young people's lives, I guess. He's a lot creepier here. It would have been nice if maybe we found out George had tried to get rid of the car, that he took it to the junkyard and it was crushed into a cube and it showed up. We'll find out that the original owner tried to get rid of the car and it showed up three weeks later. Like, again, I'm letting it go that the car is just evil, but I would like some motivation for other things that happened in this film. I'm wondering why Arnie's into the scrap heap. I'm wondering why George, yeah, you know, is this car haunting him and he's got to pass it on? Is it like the ring and he's got to share the videotape? You know, all I know is I don't blame Arnie for wanting to shell out $250 for it. To me, that actually does seem like a good deal. I mean, you could sell that for parts. Yeah, the amount of steel on this car. This is an old car. There, there's a lot of scrap metal on there. Yeah, I would think <laughs> that it's worth that. And I looked it up. Minimum wage at that time was, uh, I think, three thirty-five. So it would have taken him maybe three weeks of a full-time job to pay that off. Yes, it would be a sacrifice for a youth in the late 70s, early 80s. But, I mean, they could do it. And, yeah, he has his own money. And he wants to establish that because he has a domineering mother that's made all of his choices for him. What perhaps is the most shocking thing for me is that car still runs. We're going to see him drive it home. It barely runs. I do love it sputtering and the way it belches gas out of the back. I mean, that was 
an amusing scene. His mother, though, played by Christine Belford. She's an actress that I've just seen in tons of stuff, but I have trouble naming it except for this. When I see her again in other stuff, it's she's the mother from Christine. She's done a lot of television I've seen, though. She plays a mega bitch really well, and she I like that she is a very much more toned-down, domineering mother than they're all gonna laugh at you from Carrie. Yeah, but she's not that toned-down. Like, I still feel like this is in TV sitcom-level family fighting here. And I, I get it. Again, I might like some version of this. I like that... Arnie is trying to set his independence. He's a senior in high school now. He got his first car. He's he's done everything. He's got this whole speech. I've done everything my parents, what you guys wanted me to. I did this instead of that. Like, this is the first time. Like, every teenager has this fight at some point with their parents. Yeah, he wants to be his own man, and he doesn't want to be defined by what his parents want for him. Really, his mother. I mean, his dad is a non-presence. It's very clear who makes all the decisions. She uses the pronoun we, but it's her. She wants to make the decision. She didn't approve of this car, so therefore she's against it. She thinks she can make her son get rid of it by making him park it at some garage far, far away, and that, you know, he'll eventually get tired of having to make the trek over there. Now, you may not like Keith Gordon, but look at some of these other actors. I mean, Christine Belford, I think she's doing well. I absolutely love Robert Brosky as Darnell. I think he plays this just right with the greasy, kind of dirty look, the way he's all gruff and grumbly in the voice. He's got a performance. I, I don't take any of this seriously or scary. Carpenter saying this is a comedy. I do feel like there's just people acting on a sitcom level of acting here, and he's one of them. He, he's broad. It's way over the top. I mean, Darnell is just like, every line is some, like, put down. I'm like, ah, if you do this, I'll fucking kick your ass out of here, and blah, blah, blah. You look like a creep, and blah. I'm like, okay, I get it. You, one, one line of that would have been enough, but it is like a whole spiel. He's got a whole routine he does when Arnie is like, can I use a space over here and find some junk? He's another bully. I mean, Arnie will eventually call it out, I think, correctly. This is a town of shitters. (laughs) Everyone is awful. Everyone's got a shit attitude. So, yeah, chalk him up as yet another person I wouldn't mind seeing going under Christine's wheels. I don't know. Dardell can't be that bad. He's not charging for the garage. Well, he is until Arnie starts working for him. Just a quick note about this actor, though. We have reviewed him before. He's Grandpa Fred from Gremlins 2. I did see that. And the projectionist in Last Action Hero, where he played a really nice guy. (laughs) He's got range. (laughs) But at this point, I feel the movie's been doing pretty well. The first act of this movie, the first 30 minutes, has been really cohesive. Arnie goes to school. Arnie gets picked on. Arnie buys a car. Arnie takes it in. From this point on... We're going to have jumps in time, some of which are called out by subtitles that show the date on it. Yeah, I don't understand that. (laughs) And others of which just kind of happen. And so at 30 minutes, Dennis is taking Arnie to drop the car off at Darnell's. 35 minutes, Dennis shows up. Hey, Arnie, we're going to see a movie. Ah, shit, I got to work. Sorry, didn't even bother to call you. Yeah, you know... You obviously wrote down a lot of time markers. I wrote down one because I'm waiting for the bullies. Like, I know that's coming back. I know that's got to be the main revenge. I feel like Arnie drops out for around the next half hour. Like, we'll see little snippets of him here and there. But we're going to get a whole scene about Dennis trying to hook up with 
Lee and the library. I have a lot of questions about what's going on with Arnie. Is he actually restoring the car? Like, I wanted to see that relationship. Like, the more he loves this car, he's going to have this whole speech about love and, and feeding love. Like, I feel like I don't believe that he could restore this car on his own. So I wanted to see the more love he put in, that car starts putting itself back together and we see him starting to be corrupted. He's just going to show up with no glasses and be evil all of a sudden. It's worth pointing out, two-thirds of the book is written in first person from Dennis. That's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, he switched to third person for the middle third of the novel and then switched back, and it's awkward at least. But Dennis is the main character, and it's like, Arnie and I did this, and I went over to Arnie's, and all of a sudden he was acting weird. So the screenwriter was hewing very closely to King. A lot of the dialogue here is taken from it. Of course, they did remove the ghost aspect, but I think that's why we get so much of Dennis. Yeah, and I think that if they had had more time between publication and production, maybe they would have realized that what worked on the page wasn't what they were trying to make. That on the page, you needed an outside character to tell you how Arnie was changing. Here in a movie, we can see that. We don't need someone to comment on that. So maybe Arnie is alone. Maybe he doesn't need a dentist. And it would just be better to, yeah, see this bullied kid find something that he loves and start restoring it. And we can see that relationship grow. Because what's going to happen in this next half hour is basically everyone in Arnie's life who already is sort of, I wouldn't say, you know, an advocate for his independence is really going to be turned off by the things he does for Christine. Which I never get a sense of why. Like, they're all talking bad about this car and it's taking up all this time. I never get a sense of why they're upset. Like, good, this kid is staying out of gangs and restoring a car, that using his hands. How is that a bad thing? I and it's weird, like, he goes after Lee. Like, we see, again, Dennis wants a date with her. Oh, I already have one for Friday night. Surprise, surprise, it's going to be Arnie. Like, when did all that take place? Like, I would have liked to see, as much as I don't like the character, I would have liked to see him build that confidence from restoring the car and going and getting the chick. Like, yeah, the, the view is on the wrong people in this movie. I agree completely, Jacob. It's not helped. I know you guys haven't liked Keith Gordon and John Stockwell that well. I like both of them in this, but Alexandra Paul here is just ruinous. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, I'm reserving my special hate for this future Baywatch actress who probably wasn't even as good as Pamela Anderson on that show. <laughs> Many times I felt she went to the Heather Langenkamp School of Acting. <laughs> but I agree with you, Jacob. I wish there had been more of this. It is also... I think worth bringing up, Carpenter didn't really want to do this movie. I kind of get that feeling. Like, every once in a while, we'll get the standard Carpenter synth, but it seems really uninspired. Like, Stranger Things, which, look, was meant to be a ripoff of a whole lot of things, including King and including music from Carpenter. Like, that did Carpenter better than an actual Carpenter film, which is not a good sign. Yeah, you can feel that this is a paycheck job. Exactly. He was coming off The Thing, which we all love and everybody... You know, says is a masterpiece now, but back then his career was in shambles and he needed a paycheck gig that would be tied to big names and get him able to do jobs he wanted to again. I definitely think that's why this second half hour is really a shambles. And I go with it because I've seen this movie so many times. But watching it with those now playing goggles on, it's actually really hurt it for me that I realize. 
we don't really see Arnie transform. We see him stand up for himself for the car, and then five minutes later, he's a mega dick. Yeah, being a newbie to this, never reading it or seeing it, it was really shocking. Like, how little they developed that transformation, which I thought would be a main point of the film. Arnie's who we want to see, just as Carrie is who we want to see in Carrie. Yeah, and I want to see Christine and Christine... We get to 45 minutes and Lee and Arnie are making out pretty hot and heavy, but she's jealous of the car. We have not seen Christine do anything. Not in Arnie's life anyway. We saw it on the assembly line, so we know. But what exactly has she done? I mean, does she fog up the windows when they're trying to watch a movie? (laughs) have not gotten evil off of her i I mean lee's gonna get out and stand in the rain and say uh, you know i feel like you love that car more than me i haven't seen any of that i haven't seen arnie go sorry i can't go on a date with you tomorrow night i gotta give the car a wax job or something we never see anything that is so all of a sudden oh i'm jealous of the car Yes. We wanted to build that relationship. We want to see Arnie as the star. But given that, that they're just going to kind of streamline and do bits from the book, even that still, I don't get a whole lot of scary from this car. Even if I were to accept that somehow everyone has concluded this car is a bad thing for Arnie, I never feel like it's doing much other than offering ironic radio commentary. You never had a car make you choke on food? I don't know how that happens. Like Mm -mm. at the beginning in 1957, I understand like the latch on the hood comes down and smashes the guy's finger. The guy that's inside and spills the ashes on it. You know, the car could have filled it up with carbon monoxide or something to kill him. But choking on food, I don't know how the car did. It could have, I guess, suddenly honked its horn and scared her. She took a bite, but I get the impression from the book not from this movie, that it didn't force food down her throat, but it certainly created a situation where nobody could help her. By breaking the windshield, making Arnie hop out, even though she hadn't choked at that point, maybe she knew, I mean, it's a magic car. And then locking the door, this is the first time since that pre-credits opening that we see Christine move on her own locking the door and it's kind of cool how the car lights up like the interior lights go on and almost looks like a alien abduction or or something but again it doesn't mean anything a dolomite a lock car and a radio uh, to me you call you said carpenter called this a comedy it shouldn't be but i do like the song she plays i mean while lee is choking it's your mine and we belong together and the way that the car communicates through rock and roll and again they're aping king himself who started every chapter of this book with a verse from a rock song of the era but i like that that's how it expresses itself it's like had an ipod before the days of where it could just play the right song at the right time you keep on knocking but you can't come in Uh, you know a little of that is cute but this should not feel like a herbie movie you know we need to be scared I need to look at that car and go, ooh, that's, I see eyes. I see that it wants to run me down. That, that is going to make me choke on some rallies or something. That's, that's not <laughs> scary. And uh, this film, it's not scary, and it's so awfully paced at, I wrote this down, 55-minute mark, Buddy and his goons finally show up to trash the car, which I've been waiting for. Like, that was so set up at the beginning of this that they were going to trash that thing and we're going to see some revenge. Man, an hour to get to that point in a two-hour film. I I just wanted to get there. You know, if you're not going to give me any satisfying personal relationships, at least, yeah, give me that horror. Give me that scare. You mentioned John Travolta. It ends up looking like 
greased lightning restage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did enjoy watching this and noticing that there's four goons. Each one takes a different quadrant so that like they really were smashing a car but they were just standing out of the way of each other so like when buddy rips off the hood nobody's there and i also really did enjoy seeing that one of those goons was the geek from ghostbusters who didn't like getting the electric shocks i don't know if you guys recognized him he had the same hair yeah that's him his other claim to fame i guess but yeah, the bullies, that was the driving force of Carrie, you know, that they did something horrible. They they cut up his lunch. They offered a knife, and that is scary. That is a step beyond. It's why Buddy got kicked out. His friends were reprimanded. I'm all for that. But you're right. That storyline sat on ice for 40 minutes while we had all of this other piecemeal teenage drama. I mean, we didn't even talk about it, but Dennis is in the hospital because he's watching Arnie make out with Lee on the hood of the car. Like, a bunch of stuff has happened. Right. Did he get distracted or did the car do that? Yeah, he was just jealous. That had nothing to do with the car. He liked Lee and Arnie got the girl. Yeah. To me, that should be Christine causing that, but only if you accept the idea that Christine got him the girl, which we didn't see. And she hates the car, so I don't know if that worked. But you have to imply Arnie would not have gotten a girl in his old form. It's, you know, with Christine around. It's too many steps, though, of reasoning without showing it. Mm-mm. It doesn't look that different. Okay, he's going to put on a James Dean jacket, and that quote makes him cool. But, I mean, that's actually not cool in 1978, so he still looks like a geek to me. I can believe that the car gave him the confidence to ask that girl out, but again, how much must we infer? Why wouldn't we be able to see these scenes? Yeah, it jumps away from his point of view. We're no longer in Arnie's point of view for much of this movie because we are supposed to have him be the other and see what's happening to him instead of empathizing with him. It makes it awkward. We did see Buddy there at the football game, too. That's what reminds us those bullies are still hanging around. That's when the other bully who likes to crush nuts goes, I know where he keeps it. So it's in the background there, but it's finally at the one hour mark that this thing course corrects, you know? The steering alignment had been off. It had been swerving all over the road to the point of where Arnie finds the car demolished. And then Christine rebuilds herself in some really cool effects. I love seeing the way that works. It just awed me as a kid. I didn't know how they did it. And this is where the movie gets into gear, if you can pardon the car pun. Oh, it might get into gear. It's going to stall pretty soon. I, I want to be clear. I don't think, I think the movie's pacing problems are throughout. I don't think this movie ever finds its footing, but I will, get, I want to grant you that is the second best scene in the movie is when we finally get to see Christine show that she's supernatural. She's implied it, you know, a little dome light is a little too bright, uh, the radio. Yeah, there's things that we know that, that make it magical, but when we actually see it rebuild itself from its desecrated state into mint condition, does that mean that Arnie never did anything? Well, that that's what I was asking. I would have liked to seen him get a little glimpse here and there that as he felt love from someone that it was starting to rebuild itself. But I do like this. I agree with both of you. Like when Arnie stands back and says, okay, show me. And the way Carpenter shoots it with Arnie in the foreground, Christine in the background, the headlights go on, rebuilding. I got to ask though, 
a car that could transform itself and just communicates the radio. Did Michael Bay steal his idea for Bumblebee from this film? <laughs> you know, I also absolutely love you kind of dinged Carpenter's score here. I really like the score Carpenter did. And my favorite part of it is that sound every time those headlights come up. I just. Oh, it is just really, the first time I saw this, that sound started to really haunt me. I was watching it late at night in a dark room, and I was young, and <laughs> that sound got to me. And in the score, he really went so with far with his love story. The way he was portraying Arnie's relationship with the car, the music that plays when the bullies are beating it up, Carpenter entitled The Rape which I'd never really paid attention to. I was listening to the score. I'd owned the score for a decade. And like, what scene is the rape? Yeah, it's them demolishing the car. I don't dislike Carpenter's score. I feel like it's reduced, much like his whole influence here. I feel like he's had to take a backseat to a book and Stephen King and oldies. And so the music that I'm noticing is the old stuff on the radio, and there's very little of his synth creeping in here. And by setting it in 1978, it's just not period appropriate even. I mean, I think of his stuff being like 80s, you know, that that synth stuff that just, I don't know. I guess what I'm saying, bottom line, is I understand why they'd get John Carpenter because he's master of horror and you'd want to tie him, much like Romero, to Stephen King. But he doesn't seem to be a good fit when it comes to aesthetics or style or or the way that he goes about scaring someone. I really like the camera work in here, though. I think the style, as far as that goes, the look of this film is good. Yeah, but it's not a fantastic film. Yeah, no, there there, there are a couple, this rebuilding scene and then another scene later on, I mean, are, are fantastic and they feel like Carpenter moments. But, I mean, we're going to get our first real kill right after this rebuilding scene. It's going to go after the fat bully. I, I just wrote them, wrote these bullies down by their types. He's moochie. Fatties always get it first. We know this. Yeah, when we saw all the bullies, we're like, it will be you first. <laughs> I actually thought it would be the tall, gangly ginger who was in just one of the guys. But no, it's this guy, moochie. And this is where it really kicks up for me. I enjoy this chase. I love the music that plays. Again, the sound when the headlights come on and when Moochie gets into that alcove and he's like, I, it may be a dead end, but I'm safe because a car can't get in here and I have a knife. And Christine just as smashes herself to go after him. The thing that would have improved this, I hate to say it, but better special effects so that they didn't have a driver in there if this was actually a remote control car if we could see the wheel turning itself but i think they're trying to play up the mystery and it just never played for me is arnie the driver well that's what i was wondering it, because at the end we'll see that he's in the car i thought him and christine were in this together i he's gonna have an alibi later on when a detective shows up he'll pull out a receipt and say this is where i was so i guess christine's just going out is she doing this on her own did he tell her to go after him and does that change anything if he isn't doing it yeah no it's it's a big difference if he's not commanding her to go out and murder or knowing then that brings some innocence upon him i actually don't think he's commanding when he's at the driver's seat i feel like it's a fake sense of control he might think that he's driving but she's the one that's actually doing everything i agree i think she's possessing him she's changing him and so the fact that the car is driving itself at these moments it gives him a good alibi i think that's the most important thing 
is that if he's behind the wheel, then him getting arrested is a foregone conclusion. Plus, it's just scarier that a car can drive itself. Well, yeah, it scared the hell out of us a maximum overdrive. Yeah, I mean, this came out a year before Terminator, but I got a lot of Terminator on this. It won't stop. It's relentless. It never gets tired. It never gives up. It can repair itself. And the synth score. Maybe in the abstract, I could see that, but I don't get that in this film. I would have liked that. I don't feel it in this film. Arnie, do you think this scene is scary? This one, I did when I was 15. I don't so much now. Now I just find it exciting. Okay, see, I get nothing. Again, I have general problems with this car not giving any creep vibes. It's just not giving me a whole lot. I agree with you that headlights coming on, it's kind of a cool move. They do it a couple of times. But in general, it's not that hard to outrun the car. Get out of the road. (laughs) When it's coming at you in the alley, crawl on the hood. Here's the other thing, Stuart, and you guys probably didn't think I was going to bring up Pixar's cars in this review. (laughs) But, you know, one of the problems with that film is they don't understand that the face of the car, they put the eyes on the windshield. No, the car has a natural face. The headlights are the eyes, the grills, the mouth. Like, I feel you should play with that in a horror film about a living car. And there's a moment at the end where it kind of looks like Christine has jagged teeth, but play with that. Do something like that. Make it move or make it at least the characters think it's moving to scowl at them or something. There, there's so many things you could do. You could put a green goblin head on it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could do a lot more now, Jacob, with CGI. Back then they had 16 cars and they were cars and you can't make one a scowling car. They crushed a lot of them, but you can't really do like the Deadpool facial expressions on cars. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but you know what we're saying, that if we don't give this car personality, it just feels like a stunt driver going down an alley. I guess because of how it looks, because of the relentlessness with which it drives, I feel this car has personality in these attacks. And if Moochie's death is lackluster, well, let's face it, Moochie's a lackluster character. But when it goes after Buddy and the other two at the gas station, this is an amazing scene. I love this scene. When it smashes in, the gasoline's going everywhere, gas station explodes, killing two of them, but Buddy's outside, and then Christine flaming pulls out and goes after him, still on fire. Yeah, that is the best shot of this film, is that... Christine on fire, driving down the street, except we don't see the death of Buddy, which is a problem. Oh my God. I turned to the friend I was watching it with and I'm just like, that wasn't him, was it? And he was like, "Uh uh-huh. I'm like, he's just lying there on fire. That was it. You barely even noticed he got hit. Yeah. I'll tell you, I, in college. I don't know if I want to hear this. Set your car on fire and ran over someone. (laughs) I did a video montage about violence in films. And I was coming down on the side of violence in films is just silliness and shouldn't bother anybody. And so I took the most horrific scenes from all these films, made a three-minute montage. It actually had the exact opposite effect. People were getting sick. I had scenes from Hellraiser and everything. But it was this scene of the flaming car and then the burning corpse that made one person get up and walk out. They are overly sensitive then. Yeah, it's powerful imagery. I'll give them that. It looks really cool. But in context, I really felt like 
wow, Buddy, of all of them, had it coming. Well, this is the one death that we actually won't judge Arnie for committing, or Christine, probably. But yeah, that this guy needed to go down. We want to relish it. This guy's not smart enough to get out of the road. So why not like run him down in grandiose fashion? It really makes me appreciate Death Proof that much more, that they knew that when you're behind the wheel, you really want to relish those hit-and-run moments. Yeah, I really thought a lot of this film would be Christine going around getting revenge on these bullies. It goes by really fast. Like, we take out Moochie by himself, but then we take out the other three all at once. Now, it's a great scene with this exploding gas station, but if this was better paced, I I feel like this is what you want to focus on in this kind of film if you're making a horror film. Yeah, I I mean, it happens too fast, is I guess what I would say. You're not wrong about the enthusiasm of the moment. I mean, the car looks great on fire. The gas station explodes beautifully. But that moment needs to be positioned in a way to get us, you know, excited and revved up. And I just feel like so much of this movie has been on idle. And and I didn't expect that. I mean, again, I read the book and thought the car parts were the worst parts of the book. I liked the book, but I liked the book as a story about two friends that were growing apart because one had kind of gotten addicted. I think you're kind of overselling that. I like that part of the book, but it's melodrama. It's not King's Best. It is not Stand By Me, The Body Good. I liked the ghost car bits. I liked the murders. There's a lot more of them in the book. You know, we get Harry Dean Stanton in here as a cop, and he was another nemesis. Christine takes out a good dozen people in the book, and I think that the fact that here she takes out five, and I'm never quite sure why Darnell gets it in this, and he's just crushed by a seat moving forward... And that's really where Christine's reign of terror ends. Yeah, I don't even know why Harry Dean Stanton's character, Detective Junkins, is in this. He doesn't do anything except take up time when I want to see a car killing people. Oh, but Harry Dean Stanton's awesome. I mean, I love Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah, but he serves no purpose. He serves no purpose. I mean, you could take, cut him out of this film, nothing changes. I, I agree, and and probably should have, given how little dramatic impact that he ends up having. You see him, you get excited, and then when the movie's over and you're like, huh, they didn't use Harry. And they didn't use the mom. I mean, how could they not use the mom? She's set up as the person that has been controlling all his life. Now a new woman is controlling all his life. How can we not have that battle? Yeah, and admittedly, Harry Dean Stanton is only used slightly better here than he was in the first Avengers film. But I like that he's putting the pressure on Arnie. Like, the cops are around, they're keeping an eye on him, they're watching the car. But there are a couple other jumps, and I'm curious if you guys felt it was weird because around this time Dennis gets out of the hospital as well and he spends New Year's with Arnie and Arnie's drunk driving and talking about the shitters and showing Christine driving himself and giving us that road shot again a year before Terminator we get the headlight on the road with the lines I think Cameron took a little from this shitter is that an old term that somebody the 1950s 60s would have used or is it because they shit on his dashboard and thus he's labeled them shitters shitter is the term used by George LeBay in this so this is the term from the last car owner it's not really a term from the 50s or now and arnie i believe was using it before they even shit on his car yeah i took it because they laid a deuce on his dashboard 
And I got to say, the line, Death to the Shitters of the World, 1979, someone named their band that. I, we had the same notes. I'm like, that is the perfect <laughs> band name. The Shitters of 1979. <laughs> I'll buy your album. I'll do it then, Stuart, just for you. <laughs> I'm in, especially if you could somehow sample the headlight sound from this. <laughs> but in the book, you really understand that it was the previous owner that was coming back to life through Arnie. Here, I wonder if that's coming through. I know that because I read the book, but if I hadn't, I would just think that he has really bad taste in jackets. No, that is not coming through. <laughs> Someone who has not read the book, I just took it as he's being corrupted by this car. Love's a voracious thing. You got to feed it. It's feed me, Seymour. This, this is where I get that little shop of horror vibes when he's giving this speech to Dennis in the car. So, so he's supposed to be starting to dress like it's 1958. Yeah, he's definitely wearing the Rebel Without a Cause jacket at some point, And then it switches to all black when you know he's irredeemable. Because there's nothing scarier than a greaser, Jacob. Nothing scarier than a greaser. Do we need to re-review? Sometimes they come back. Oh, I, I know that. <laughs> I thought Buddy and his gang were the greasers, but I guess we got another one here. Yeah, they were actually like the sweat hogs from Welcome Back Cotter is kind of the vibe I got off them. That may be the Travolta thing I had going on. See, I got a Grease vibe off them because I thought it was John Travolta at first. Well, both had for Travolta. Yeah, I definitely think. And again, John Travolta, Carrie. I mean, I can't not think about Carrie. And Carrie was structured very similarly. You have to remember, it took a long time to get to prom, but dramatically, so much was working. There were so many scenes with Carrie and her mom and what the bad kids were doing to hurt Carrie and all of those plans coming together it felt like it was coming to a, a grandiose climate in which you know carrie had to explode the, the tension was just too much here the climax they're calling the end to it i don't even know how they defeat the car i guess they roll over it or something all right this is what I wondered, because when I watched this movie, I'd read the book, but in watching the movie, I thought this was awfully sudden that Dennis and Lee are just kind of talking, and then they're like, all right, now we're going to do it. We're going to go take a screwdriver and carve Darnell's tonight into Christine, and then we're going to have the final duel. And I was wondering, what is the inciting incident for this? Did you guys have a problem with the abruptness of the climax? Of how it just showed up? Well, I, I felt that throughout the whole film. It, lots of things just showed up. So it was just another continuation of that for me. They did cut an entire subplot. They should have cut two or three more. <laughs> it was throughout the scenes. There were scenes of Arnie and Dennis in the hospital, but it was mostly scenes of Dennis and Lee, and they end up making out, and then Arnie catches them making out and tries to ram Dennis with his car. And that's the first time Arnie is behind the wheel of Christine is trying to kill Dennis. Dennis fights back a little bit. And now Arnie's out for them, which forces this. I think that should have been left in. I don't know why they cut it. Is the acting great? No, because Lee is involved. <laughs> but it's not any worse. <laughs> I'm with you there. Exactly. You needed that love triangle to happen. They set that up. I mean, what's the purpose of setting up that Dennis is going to be with this girl and rebuff poor Kelly Preston, who's in this movie all of five seconds? Yeah, for no reason. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Yeah, we saw that he liked this girl and that Arnie got to her for the first time in his life. Arnie took something away from him. He was the one that had the cool car, the football career. Everyone admired him. Now suddenly his nerdy friend is upstaging him. I definitely feel like that kind of character interplay was needed throughout the movie and most certainly in the climax. My guess for them cutting it was that either this movie was running too long or more than likely they wanted us to like the two leads. They didn't want us to have bad feelings like they were cheaters. Yeah, I think that's probably what it is. That's my guess when I watched those scenes. But we needed it. We needed to see Arnie try to run down Dennis himself, not with Christine. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. That was sorely needed. And again, I needed a better climax than this. I needed an explosion here. And I mean, honest to God, I watched this movie twice. And the first time I actually had to hit fast forward because this car chase was going too slow. I'm like, would you please just somebody ram into something, please? Well, it does involve a bulldozer. That that may be part of the problem. (laughs) I do like this climax here at the end. I think it is appropriately paced, appropriately exciting. It's close quartered, and the license plate for Christine is CQB, and that's because of close quarters battle. But the way it's chasing after Lee, she jumps up. I feel bad for Arnie, you know? I don't know if he was the cause of any of this or if he was corrupted. The fact that he gets thrown through the windshield, Christine basically betrays and kills him is how I read it because she could have attached a seatbelt. She chose not to. See, I and I was looking for a more poetic ending. I thought if you kill the thing that Christine loves, cut off Audrey's source of food, like I thought that would have been a really sad ending to see this friend have to kill his friend you see dennis have to kill arnie like i i thought maybe that would have been more poetic i get that you want to see this car do crazy things they haven't shown me really too much crazy things with this car though throughout the film but yeah the fact that arnie just gets thrown through the windshield because he ran into something in this garage and a piece of glass went through him like many things in this movie isolated on its own that probably would work if the buildup had been right. But given that the jumble in the dark that we had that was supposedly a climax with the car trying to ram down Lee and running into the office and she did some kind of pole vaulting Jurassic Park 2 gymnastics trick to get out of its way. <laughs> yeah, I no, I, I just think this is a bad climax. And so unfortunately, the good moments in it are lost. I get into the scene. I really do. And I really do like the scene of Arnie behind the wheel of the car where we finally see it. They did put like Rocket Raccoon eye makeup on him, but... <laughs> I thought he was portraying anger and evil pretty well. And just the fact that Christine keeps healing herself and they keep hitting it with the bulldozer. I do think it's really freaking stupid when Lee is just standing there and Christine's trying to get at her. Yes, there's a bulldozer behind Christine, but Lee, you might just want to move a few steps to the left just in case. Well, if Buddy couldn't do it, I don't know if Lee's any smarter than him. No. But I I do wonder, like, we see this, and it's an okay shot of that bulldozer, like, just running over the top monster truck style of Christine crushing it. And you see Christine trying to like breathe back to life and rebuild itself. I'm like, Oh, how are they going to defeat this? It's just going to keep building itself. Cut. (laughs) Smash into a cube. Yeah. Which we know won't work. And so, you know, that they have this little tease here where first it's a false scare. Someone walks by with a ghetto blaster playing oldies. I like that. That got a chuckle out of me. I did too. 
And I like Lee's only good line in this movie is when she says she hates rock and roll. I always have enjoyed her saying that. But it's no mystery. I mean, the only mystery is why didn't we get the sequel, Christine 2, with the car riding around with Corey Feldman or something? I mean, why didn't they make this a whole franchise? Because it's obvious that this car will just keep coming back again and again and again. Yeah, I'm not upset they didn't. But it is truly shocking to me that they didn't do direct-to-video sequels, sci-fi channel reboots. These licenses are tied up somewhere, and I'm surprised nobody has decided this is the one to seize upon. The movie did well. It made good money for its $10 million budget. Yeah, I think it doubled it and did well on video. And you're right. If the rights were available, they would have been made. Something has stymied it behind the scenes. And... One interesting thing about this end scene where he's junked, George Thorogood had a role here as a cameo. He was going to be the one who actually crushed the car, but apparently his acting is even worse than Lee's because Carpenter couldn't bear to leave it in. It's not even a deleted scene on the thing. Carpenter just chose to bury it out of kindness to George Thorogood. <laughs> that does seem to be the horror of this movie is the performances. They're just all terrible. So Jacob Stewart... Are you shitters not going to recommend Christine? Jacob. Yeah, so many shitting jokes you can make, because this is kind of a piece of shit. Like, I, I do feel like I wouldn't want to find this on my dashboard. It, it Look, we, we've talked about its problem. It's poorly paced. I feel the viewpoint character is totally wrong. Like, I wanted, as much as I didn't like Arnie in this film, I did want to see his transformation more. I do feel like that's who we should be watching, just like in Carrie, we see Carrie. And I wanted to see his relationship with the car. I know that's a whole series like on TLC, My Strange Relationship, but I did want to see Arnie and Christine and, and what the relationship was and grow and, and how that corrupted him. And you, you're just not going to get that. Even worse, though, I think the, the biggest sin in this film is it's not a horror film. It's just not scary. The deaths are done poorly. There, there's a couple great shots. That car on fire is a great shot, but the death is done poorly. I didn't even realize, like, Buddy, until, yeah, I had to go back. The main guy you want to see die, you don't really get to see die. So, you know what? This is a not recommend. Take the Uber. Skip Christine. <laughs> Stuart. I'll say this. I'm extremely disappointed. I mean, that's what it is more than, like, saying it's a bad film. It's just that when I read the book, I liked it. And when I saw this movie, I couldn't understand why I wasn't connecting to it. But it's not because I dislike Carpenter. It's not because I don't like the source material. I do think a large part of it is... These actors aren't working for me. The cinematography looks great, but I just do not believe this car is alive. And I do not care what happens to the people that it's chasing down. And I think that it just leaves it to be sort of this generic feeling film, impersonal. Like, it does not surprise me to know that John Carpenter didn't have much enthusiasm in this. I mean, he made this between Thing and Starman two of his best films and emotional films. And yeah, this definitely feels like autopilot. This could be a really good one. And I'd like to see it remade because the potential is there. But can I recommend this movie? Only when you look in the larger scope. I think we've reviewed 45 King movies. So it is still in like the top 15. It's still one of the best that we have seen, but it is a not recommend. Ooh, that, that's saying something about the quality of these films, if you feel that way. <laughs> I need to be clear. Yes, this movie has a character named Arnie who's the main protagonist. He is not mentally challenged, nor is he immediately beheaded upon entering as Arnie was in Nightbreed. 
And yes, I named my computer Christine because of this book and movie. But there is no bias when I watched this, whether I was going to recommend it or not. The question is, does this movie hold up? And I think it really does. I think that the rock and roll music helps carry it and give it a buoyancy that helps offset some of the leaden pacing. I think that the actors are not great thespians. I think it's telling that one went to Baywatch and the other two decided to find success behind the camera instead of in front of it. Strangely, we're going to be talking about Buddy again. I guess he's in Mulholland Drive, mm -hmm. but... <laughs> Not in a major way. He plays second assistant director. I saw it on IMDb. I've not yet seen the film. Oh, yeah. Okay. There's a film within the film. But I think even if they aren't great, they're perfectly cast. They do well in these roles. They are able to deliver what is asked of them. I like the car scenes. I like the car effects. I like the car chases. I especially like the flaming car. Yeah. I think this movie's bad to the bone, and I recommend it. Okay. Would you put it in the top five? Top five, I don't think so. Because we got Shining, Carrie, Shawshank, Stand By Me, Dead Zone, Creep Show. It's close, though. It's probably eight or nine. Look, I'm going to watch Maximum Overdrive before I watch this. Ow. That's my Stephen King killer car movie. Oh, okay. I See, and I think it's better than that. I mean, again, just the look of this film is enough to put it miles ahead of, of Maximum Overdrive. I kind of put it by that Carrie remake of just like, I don't feel anything when I watch this movie. It's just not clicking. Again, maybe it's the 50s rock and roll. Maybe it's the car scenes. But... I do feel things when I watch this movie, and what I don't feel ever is boredom. Wow. Okay. I never feel excitement, so there you go. But again, thank you listeners for joining us for this review. We have just a couple more King movies left here before Halloween. Next week, we start the Pet Cemetery duology. Man, I'm looking forward to revisiting both those films, really. I haven't seen either one in a long time. But I'm really looking forward to two. That thing weirded me out when I saw it on video. Have you ever had a movie make you feel dirty? That movie made me feel dirty. <laughs> okay, that doesn't seem like a selling point. I don't usually want to, like, feel grime. But, uh, okay. I've never heard a kind thing said about Pet Cemetery 2. But I am looking forward to going back. It's a good Stephen King book. Let's see what they do with it. In the meantime, if you want more horror, our 1986 series continues this Friday with Chopping Mall. And I will have a bonus podcast out on the main feed around that time. I'm going to be talking with some of the makers of Chopping Mall. But that's available. And if you enjoy the show... Even if you can't donate, please consider heading to iTunes, giving us a five-star review. It really helps other listeners find the show. And again, clicking the stars is good. Leaving a few sentences is better and lets the whole team know you appreciate the work that the editors, graphic designers, website designers, and us hosts put into it. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. Until next time, get the hell out of here. We're closed. I wouldn't feel so bad if I were you. You two are heroes, you know. Yeah. Real hero could have saved Arnie. We didn't do so hot. Hey, some things can't be helped. Some people do. 
Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Probably the only thing my brother ever loved in his whole rotten life. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original novels. A hell of a job. A hell of a job, Arnie. Well, thank you very much. And come back to nowplayingpodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, and dozens more in our archive section. I'm afraid for Arnie. Also at our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. You know, when someone believes in you, man, you can do anything, any fucking thing in the entire universe. And when you believe right back in that someone, then watch out, world, because nobody can stop you. Then nobody, ever. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. Can't hurt us anymore. Not if we work together. I know you ain't exactly got money falling out of your asshole. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. How much do you want for? I mean, whatever it is, it's not enough. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Well, I don't think I have the minimum deposit to open an account, you know what I mean? I... <laughs> Are you kidding? You carry your life savings between your legs. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. Look, I'm sorry about the movie, but this is work. Gotta go. Now Playing is edited by Heath and Arnie. The boy does have good hands. Good hands. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Don't interrupt me. Don't get smart. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its original copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Honey would never do that. Not in a million years, okay? Now Playing Podcast is not affiliated with the makers or distributors of these films. You don't know half as much as you think you do. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Let's motivate! Now Playing is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Inganza Media Incorporated. Okay, Jack, the riot is over. If I'm going to have to come in and get you, I'm going to get you. Come on, Arnie, we got to get going, huh? Come on, man, i got to go. I hope you didn't think I could hang around here all day. TTFN. Yeah, ta-ta for now. Why don't we tell them what the plot is? We can get into whatever Carrie, uh, whatever Carrie, whatever Christine is. Yeah, I would think that it's worth that. And I looked it up. Minimum wage at that time was, uh, I think, three thirty-five. So it would have taken him maybe three weeks of a full-time job to pay that off. Three thirty-five. When I started working in ninety, it was three eighty-five. It only went up fifty cents in twelve fucking years. Thanks, Obama. Oh, I'm sorry. I looked up eighty-three. Okay. Yeah, because I was going to say, it was 425 when I got my first job, and that was in the 90s. Yeah.
it jumped from 385 to 425 at my first job, and that was my first raise. Yeah, I, I mean, it happens too fast, is I guess what I would say. I, Arnie, you're not right about the enthusiasm for the moment, and the gas station explodes beautifully, the car is on fire in a very vivid way. Did you mean I'm not wrong? You said you're not right about the enthusiasm of the moment. Yeah, you're not wrong about the enthusiasm of the moment. <laughs> 